I'm, I'm the other imposter. We, we started out with Ian, who, who's allowed to write fiction, and, and, and I'm likewise completely an imposter. I'm not a scientist. I've never done science, you know, dropped out of high school, but, uh, but I tell stories. So Ian tells stories that, that can take us totally into the future, wherever he wants to go, and I, all I do is go back into the past and find the stories that people forgot. Uh, Allison said how nobody reads past the one sentence in Turing's 1950 paper, and they, they never read past his 1936 paper. He's much more interesting computers, not the, not the universal Turing machine, but the second machine he wrote the, his thesis on in Princeton, which was an oracle machine. So it's a non-deterministic machine. Already he realized by then that the deterministic machines were not that interesting. It was non-deterministic machines that were interesting. And the same with von Neumann. We talk about the von Neumann architecture, but the von Neumann only has one patent. And that patent is for non-von Neumann architecture. It's for, a, it's for a neural computer that can do anything. And he explains how it, to get a patent, you have to show what it can actually do. And, and nobody reads that, uh, that patent. And, and Danny gave us, or Freeman gave us, you know, marvelous. It, it, the measure of a good story is that it gets better as it's repeated by other people. So Danny's story about the Songs of Eden, how you look at, uh, you can look at the development of language and all this consciousness we talk about is really, it's just look at it from the point of view of the, the, the songs themselves, these strings of language that, so I mean, those, those, so we're obsessed with these other minds that are going into technology. There's this, a whole nother track where you can have mind and intelligence that has no technology at all. Freeman always pointed out that the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is wrong, that really what we are looking for is extraterrestrial technology because we can see it. You can have uh, intelligence, technology, or different things. So there's a parallel to the songs that went to the apes or the songs that went into the oceans and became uh, whales who have highly developed songs and are raised by their uh, you know, maternal 100-year-old grandmothers um, but have no technology, but obviously have very advanced brains, five or six, eight times the size of, of ours. So I'm interested not in domesticated AI, the, the stuff that people are trying to sell, but wild AI, AI that completely evolves in the wild. That, to me, I'm a naturalist, and that's the, the interesting thing. And I'm also, I mean, to make no assumptions, I mean, Stan Ulam, who 34 years ago at a meeting just like this said, what, you know, to the, everybody in the room, what makes, they're all mathematicians, what makes you so sure that mathematical logic corresponds to the way we think? It's a, it's a higher level uh, symptom. It's not, the fun, it's not how the brain works. All those guys knew fully well that it, the brain was not fundamentally um, logical. So, and I'm not going to repeat what, what's in the chapter of John's book, which you know that I'm obsessed with it. We're, I think we're in a transition the same as the first Macy conferences, the behavior, purpose, and teleology happened at this, you know, started in 1943 at a time of transition when the world was full of analog electronics at the end of World War II. We had built all these vacuum tubes and millions, of, and suddenly there was free time to do something with them, and we, oh, let's make digital computers. So we had the digital revolution, and we're now at exactly the same 
tipping point in history where we have all this digital equipment, all these machines. We heard the expression how they're, they're most of the time they're doing nothing except waiting for the next single instruction. And people are, the funny thing is now it's happening without people intentionally. There we had a very deliberate uh, group of people who said, let's build digital machines. Now I believe we are building analog computers in a very big way, but nobody's really organizing it. It's just sort of happening. If you look at what the, the most interesting computation being done on the internet, most of it now is analog computing. And I'm saying analog in the sense, the Danny was saying how there's two senses of analog. This is analog in the sense of computing with continuous functions rather than discrete strings of code. Where the meaning is not in the sequence of bits. The meaning is just relative, like, do, does this YouTube channel get more clicks per, you know, your relative frequency, which, which von Neumann was very clear, that's how the brain does its computing. It's, it's, a, uh, it's pulse frequency coded, not digitally coded. There is no digital code. So my, and I'm going to be quick so we can have, have discussion, but the, my current metaphor for that, that, that I just, it may or may not make sense, but it makes sense to me, is that in mathematics there's this, deep old problem called the continuum hypothesis that we have infinities. We actually have an inf infinite number of different infinities, but they divide into only two kinds. There are countable infinities and there are uncountable infinities. And my analogy for that is like at the end of a conference, when you look for a t-shirt, there are only extra small t-shirts and extra large. There's no medium-sized t-shirts. And the continuum hypothesis, which which is the difference between being believable or being true and being provable has not been proved. But the hypothesis is that you will never find a medium-sized infinity, that all the infinities belong to one side or the other. And the two very interesting things are happening. So that what this means is that you know, the uncountable infinity is, you say, a line. So there's this infinite number of points between any two points. And then if you take another cut a piece of that line, it still has an infinite number of points. So, and that, I believe, is analogous to organisms. That every, all organisms that, that do their computing with continuous functions. In nature, we use uh, discrete functions for error correction in genetics, but all control systems in nature are, are analog. And the, the, the smallest analog system has the full power of the continuum. On the other side, you have the constructible infinities, and what What's interesting there is that we're, we're sort of trying to prove this by doing it, that the entire digital universe is, you know, we're doing our best to create a medium-sized infinity. So you can say, well, it exists. We've made it. You know, we're adding the current digital universe is growing by um, 30 trillion transistors per second, and that's just on the hardware side. So, so we actually have this medium-sized infinity, but it still legally belongs to the countable infinities. And... That, so that's my metaphor of how I think about this, that no matter what you do in the digital world, it stays stuck on that side of the room. And, but what's not against the rules is that there's no prohibition against machines doing continuous computing. And, and then they belong to the other side. And that's, we were talking about hybrid machines yesterday. I think that's the interesting future that that the atom that Ian imagines is only going to really happen when the machines move to the other side, to the continuous side, and then they can start having the things we have. 
Um, and that's, there's no reason not to do that. So I'm just going to close with, again, not my idea, but somebody else's. In uh, 2003 was the von Neumann centennial. And at that time, the Templeton Foundation was, was changing from sort of trying to prove the existence of God to don't mention God at all. We're just doing science. And they, they held a series of meetings in honor, the problem with von Neumann, he did so many fields. They had to have six von Neumann conferences. On, and one of them was on von Neumann game theory. And one of the people, a, a Scottish mathematician, he had not got the instructions. And he came in and gave absolutely beautiful proof using classical von Neumann game theory. It wasn't a proof of the existence of God, but it was a proof that if there was a God and she existed, no matter what value function you choose. You can choose any value function. You say, well, well, my values are different. I'm, I'm this religion. I'm that religion. It doesn't matter. The value, whatever the value function is, the payoff is higher if the God does not reveal herself. So the, then the, the, the point of that is that, that the, the, the message, the take home is, is that faith is better than proof. You don't want proof. And, and, and in, in, in terms of God and religion, I think we're in exactly the same situation with AI. We have these meetings year after year. Uh, you know, the same discussions come back. And I think because people are waiting, well, prove it. You know, the Turing test. I mean, to me, the Turing test is wrong. Actually, it's the opposite. If it, it, the test of an intelligent machine is it's intelligent enough not to reveal its intelligence. And, <laughs> and I think it's, it's true for AI as a whole that we're going to keep coming back and we need to have faith in AI. And, and I have faith in it. I, I believe it actually exists. Um, but we don't want proof that if the machine comes in and, and then, then sort of this, oh no, the, the game is over. Um, it's a game of faith. So that's, that's all I'm going to say. So, George, I wonder <laughs> if you're making too much of this distinction between continuous and discrete. Oh, I'm definitely making too much. <laughs> it's, um, it's, a, it's a literary, it's a metaphor for... Yeah, but, but, but I, 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 to me, there's an engineering problem in systems, which is caused by noise. And both anal uh, analog systems generally deal with that problem by filtering. So they, they do it by working, only accepting restricted time uh, frequency range of signals is typically how an analog system. But it, so in some sense, they disallow information being encoded in a certain part of the frequency space. Um, and sometimes that's just kind of inherent in how they're built. Sometimes it's done by actor explicit filtering. But you know, that's, that's how fundamentally another way of, of dealing with noise is disallowing certain amplitudes, which is basically how digital systems do it. And, and so, the, you know, that, is, that has some advantages and disadvantages. Um, it has, you know, either of them can be made to represent things to arbitrary precision. Um, and um, actually, in, in practice, you can represent things to higher precision with digital thing, uh, using the digital methods, although at great cost and power. Um, and so it seems to me like 
this is just sort of an engineering trick, and there are many other things that are sort of halfway in between, like you know, using the uh, discrete eigenvectors of a you know continuous um, a, a, a continuous function or something like that. You know that you know those are other you know that's another engineering technique for sort of forcing you towards certain. So so it, it, it seems to me like there's really nothing qualitatively different. I mean, it's an interesting engineering discussion to say, hey, I might do better using analog to solve these problems. But I'm not sure that in terms of, you know, its ability to do an artificial intelligence that there's anything there. And in fact, if I could add to Danny's point, on the analog side, you can price that exactly with fluctuation dissipation. So there's a very exact pricing for um, the thermodynamic cost of having tolerance in an analog signal. And then on the digital side, from the very, very beginning, there were FPUs and DSPs and all these. Nice, Sorry. The letter means the very first digital logic had um, floating point processors, and they had digital signal processors, and they had digital signals. They had processors to do special processing on continuous clustering on the digital side. Um, on the analog side, there's a very precise trade-off between what tolerance costs you, and in fact, you know, most of the power in your phone's radio is in the receiver, not in the transmitter against this fluctuation. Yeah, so all, the, I mean, all those are dealing with the, the, I mean, obviously the whole thing is an illusion that the, even the, you know, they're so, all, all these machines are built out of the right. same. Each emulates the stuff. other perfectly well. <laughs> but the, the important part is that you, that you don't, um, you know, analog machines like, like nervous systems on have, don't have the program. It's not a, there's not an algorithm that, which is where, where, which is where I think we're wrong. We're so obsessed with it, there has to be an algorithm. That's more open versus closed. I would argue that your talk yesterday was putting the computation matched with the thing. Is it, is it an, you know, instead of worrying about whether it's analog or digital, it's the organization because you get into a different com, you know, computational complexity class by the way stuff is organized. And so, so that's the second sense of analog. So yeah, I think there's two yeah, completely yeah, right. different senses of analog which have nothing to do with each other. And he was talking about your second sense, I thought. I thought you were talking about the I thought you were talking. I thought it was explicit that you were talking about continuous versus discrete. Yeah, and I didn't get to the other, right. the other exactly. side, which is that you, um, you, know, you, you, nature builds very, in, very intelligent systems without any, without any digital programming in the sense that we that we take it for granted. Okay, so then there's a there's a second sense of of analog, which is in some sense, whether the computation bears an analogous structure to the thing that it's computing on. And that's also, very, so for instance, a map is an analog of a physical, so it's clear that whether digital circuits or analog systems, you can have digital, you can have continuous and discrete circuits that are analog in that sense, that, that work by analogy as well. So, the issue of sort of, you know, uh, separating, having the algorithm stored separately or versus sort of inherently built into the structure, that seems to me like yet another issue. Um, so that's a third issue. Um, and so,
Yeah, that's, um, I, I think we tend to talk about all those together, and they get mixed up in this digital analog distinction. I'm not really sure what, what the interesting distinction is actually. And to Rod's oh. point, I think, I mean, these are sort of ridiculous extremes. If analog is the needle on the DVM and digital is ones and zeros, not, neither really bears on what's interesting. <laughs> that that it, it both both in biology and in computers, um, salvation is in sort of the details and the architecture, which applies a really interesting space that's not captured by either of those limits. Because historically, this whole question was the subject of Shannon's great. Right. book, The Mathematical Theory of Communication, where he showed exactly how you know, the relationship between if you have analog systems, continuous systems that have noise and that are power and bandwidth limited, then they are effectively digital and you can map the number of bits that can be encoded in it. This is the book where he, co he coined the word bit, which he stole from John Turkey. He claimed. So actually the... John gave it to him. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, he, he, uh, but so, so this is not, a, in some sense, this is a question that was resolved gloriously in 1946. <laughs> 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 Old metaphors. Because <laughs> 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 we're up to a billion transistor processors, and there's more than 30,000 processors per second being, being constructed per second. Fabricated. Oh, second. second. Fabricated. Yeah. I, I missed the time yeah. unit. I, I just want to point out I, yeah. I, I happened to see uh, Carver Mead this week. A few years ago, Carver Mead told me that the defining moment of his life was when Gordon Moore handed him a bag with 30 transistors in it. And he wrote the book on analog VLSI. As a, as a clarification, because I actually don't understand which of these might be saying. I think that there was there's something that you say, which I thought was what Freeman said yesterday, which is making an engineering observation that we've sort of gone overboard with this digital thing, and it's very costly, and it's actually probably not the right engine. It's not the right technology to get the next level of performance. These things would be better done using analog. And so that's a, and I, I agree with that that point of, you know, we've kind of over pushed the digital thing in our, in our engineering. Um, but that's a kind of an engineering technology point, not, it, it, it's nothing fundamental about computation. No, or do you think that there's something I sort of got when you started making this analogy with continuum hypothesis that, that you were saying something more than that. You're saying some, there's some fundamental difference between these computations, and I don't believe that one. All, all, you know, all I was saying was, a, which is an analogy that, that you know, when you take the continuous infinity and cut it in half, you, you still have the, the full infinity. When you take, you know, count what, so they're different. Two kinds of computing are somewhat, I think, yeah. follow the same the same path. Where you, you. So here, here's why that's not true. Because if you cut the analog signal in half, you've now got twice as much noise per signal. So, so let me if you let keep me cutting it in yeah. half. After a while, you'll be just in the noise you know. 
So let me price up. The thing I said quickly, fluctuation dissipation means if you multiply how much a signal fluctuates by how much power you're consuming, based on the system you're in, that's a constant. And so reducing the fluctuation proportionally uh, in increases the power consumption. And so it really, really costs you to limit fluctuation in analog systems. They're not continuous. It's actually very expensive to bound the distribution. And yeah, no, anyway. the people making all the devices around us live in that. It's this naive version of this beautiful, clean dot on the line. Yeah, and the, I mean, even uh, in Wiener's paper about that, he was very explicit how even the, even the analog systems aren't analog because you, yeah. There's a real thermodynamic cost point. to them that, so that imposes a notion analogous to, to, to symbols and quantization of bounding the distribution. You can see yeah. a nice example of this in human languages where, you know, the way that human languages are structured, you know, there is a continuous signal which is coming out of our mouths, right? Um, but the way that we perceive that is by breaking it up into these discrete parts of, you know, phonemes and so on, and then building up those into words, and, and then being able to exploit the combinatorics of the, the resulting discrete signals. But it, but you but can intonation is analog, right? Yeah, but uh, that that's sort of layered on top of the yeah, uh, underlying digital thing where, and and you can actually show, if you if you simulate processes of language evolution with people or you know you can you can sort of there's a there's a nice experiment that um, was done by Simon Kirby uh, and his colleagues where they had people playing slide whistles and then asked people to reproduce the slide whistle uh, Tessa Verhoff was the first alternative so they asked people to reproduce the slide whistle sounds and then they looked at just what happened as those slide whistles were transmitted and they very quickly evolved into discrete digital signals of you know uh, repeating particular elements and so on. And, that, and that the argument is that that's essentially what happens in language evolution, too, where you, you get this discreteness emerging as a way of dealing with this noisy, continuous signal. I'd like to reor reorganize the discussion to, to his last point, which was about faith. And as if you are contesting Wiener's metaphor that John, you know, kept throwing at us about kissing the whip, <laughs> kissing the hand um, that holds the whip. Kissing the hand that holds the whip. Okay, so just what are you what are you articulating here that we should have faith in the self-organizing benignity of AI or faith in? No, I think I think this was like the question that came up at the Templeton meeting. I mean, the, the lack of. Proof does, is not proof of lack of existence. Uh, just because people are saying, oh, we, we, you know, we don't think there's real AI because we don't have proof of it. And to me, that's my, my faith is different. I think I, I'm quite willing to believe in it without needing proof. So you, uh, you're advocating faith without worship. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just as suspicious as any as Norbert Wiener. I mean, in fact, I'm more suspicious than Norbert Wiener of what, what he was talking about was the, you know, if you hand this over to the corporations, you're in trouble. You know, the other issue that, that, that Wiener was very preoccupied with control and control systems, and now we talk, you know, we talk much more about intelligence. We sort of talk less about control. Control is just as important. And there again is my, my faith that these large sort of 
analog control systems are, and that works both ways because they're they're not programmed. They're not. There is no program for an analog control system in the sense that you could change a bit here and get a different output. I, I think that's the way the world works, and that we're fooling you know fooling ourselves by thinking that there is somewhere a program that has control. But doesn't, I mean, this is, this is to echo Tom's point, it gets back to, to the, just how surprising it is that taking the phenomenology of somewhat verbally thinking through or calculating a process, the, that very high level linguistic phenomenology, which is essentially what, what Turing is doing, and taking the structure of that turned out to be as productive as it was for creating, whether you call it intelligence or not, clearly creating incredibly complex functions, doing all sorts of, doing all sorts of things that look as if they're intelligent. I think that's actually a remarkable fact. I don't think a priori, if you'd looked at human beings and said, look, all of what we do, almost everything that's going on under the hood, doesn't have these characteristics of being digitized or being sequential. And it turns out that treating that little tiny bit on top that's about how we talk to one another um, or how we talk to ourselves as the relevant structure turns out to create these systems that can do all of the, do things like see or well, process vision know, or create images. I think that's actually a, a just a remarkable, non-obvious scientific fact. I mean, in the early Wiener, in the, in the war and just after the war, his interest in control, which I think is crucial, was attached to a notion of purposefulness, right? And, and so, but purpose was not purely computational as such. I mean, it was, you know, and, and, and he thought that that was kind of the leading edge of a series of sort of uh, analog algorithms, so to speak, of analog procedures that would substitute for each for various mental states, a kind of um, post-behavioral behavioralism, you know, a, be, a, be, a behavior a behavior accessible form that would get at a mental state, mm -hmm. right? The, we, you know, the old old style behaviorism would refuse any attribution of mental states or use for them, but you know, Wiener had building on things that were going on in psychology in the 30s, the late 30s, he, he then had this way of trying to make circuits that would do something like purposefulness. And to say, this really is, this this and no other is what purpose so is. So there's an interesting. This is what people were calling the teleological society. Yeah. Is, is that what? Yeah. There's, yeah. there's yeah. an interesting yeah. connection there as well in the, you know, the context in which you get human beings generating. I mean, language is, a kind of, is, a, is an interesting example, but there's at least an argument that language is, is parasitic on things like long-term planning, right? So what's the context in which you get this phenomenon of having a, a series of, uh, of calculations or having a series of discrete things that you're doing? The, the context is things like tool use, where you actually have to Describe, you actually have to restrict a set of actions that you're going to perform in the service of actually having a goal. So there, there, in that sense, there might be a closer, as opposed, again, to things like vision that don't seem to have that structure and don't seem to have that, that, uh, that goal-directed teleological character. So you know, if you want to go out and see things, it's not like what you're doing is performing a whole set of operations in order to be able to see something in the way that when you're saying to yourself, okay, what am I going to do tomorrow? I'm going to go here and I'm going to go there. It has that 
has that structure. So there might actually be a relationship between the idea of control and the idea of teleology and, and computation, at least from the perspective of what human cognition is like, where those two things